This is David Gibson. I'm the uh, executive, ed executive editor for the Journal of Ecology, and I'm joined today by Bernard Schmidt from the University of Zurich. And uh, we are recognizing Bernard um, in, in the Journal of Ecology as our 2020 eminent ecologist. So uh, this interview is an opportunity to learn a bit more about Bernard and his uh, background. So uh, welcome, Bernard. Welcome, David. <laughs> so let's let's go back, uh, sort of give everyone a bit of an idea of where you sort of come from academically, and uh, uh, tell us how you kind of got into ecology as a, as a career. Okay, um, that was at the teachers' training college in Switzerland, where at the time we had lots of biology practicals, and in the last year of that um, education. I mapped all the herbaceous species in a five hectare wetland. And then I analyzed the data with the so-called phytosociology methods. Mm -hmm. So I got interest in plant ecology for that and then started botany in Zurich, working on a particular species, which gave me the most difficulties for mapping during this work at the um, training college. And this is a Carex flava, yellow sedge, which has a lot of subspecies that actually uh, differ in ecology and cariology. And uh, later I found out Carex is really a very special genus because it has this um, kind of holocentric um, uh, chromosomes that allows breakage and fusion without too much disturbance of meiosis and therefore uh, new species can very easily evolve. And um, I hope that people know that Carex is by far the most species-rich angiosperm uh, genus in the world. So it's more than 2,500 species. Hmm. So you got interested in ecology by taking on a very difficult group of plants. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, at that time, were there, were there people that inspired you? Yes, so actually, uh, when I um, had done this work in the wetlands, I asked my professor, it's Christopher Cook, who came from England to Zurich, um, what I could do, maybe in the way of continuing vegetation science. But uh, his best advice was not to continue with plant sociology. And so he gave me all the freedom to study this Carex flava, which was my thing and I could do everything on my own. He just protected me from, from doing any work for him. I could do whatever I wanted. And therefore I somehow reinvented lots of plant demography and population biology um, because we didn't um, have any classes about this. But it was very good to be totally independent and uh, develop things on my own. Yes, that's, that's very interesting. And so, so then when we met was when you came to uh, Bangor to work in John Harper's lab as a postdoc. And, and I had just arrived, and I don't know whether you arrived first. I arrived as a PhD student to work with Peter Greg Smith in community ecology. So <laughs> That's right, yeah. our, our sort of interest started a little bit differently. Um, but how did you come then to arrive in Bangor to work with John Harper? Again, it was kind of... Uh, uh, not really the science, you know, when I had finished the PhD, I asked uh, Chris Koch if um, 
he would have an idea for a postdoc in a remote place because we had a small young family and we didn't want to go to a city. So mm. he looked at the map and he came up with this place in North Wales, Bangor, <laughs> where there was John Harper. <laughs> and so when we arrived, you know, John told us uh, after six months, you would either laugh or hate it. And fortunately, we really loved it. And I think still now North Wales was a beautiful place, has a wonderful landscape. It's spring from February to October. And in addition, there were really lots of people coming to Bangor for a short or longer visit. So it was not necessary to go to a big place. And uh, yeah, then there were some nice people there, like this PhD student from another professor who didn't mind to discuss research with um, a foreign postdoc who had just learned English by reading John Harper's textbook. Indeed, <laughs> that was the only way I learned English. Oh my gosh. And, uh, so this uh, PhD is now you as a professor in the United States, presently interviewing me. Oh, well, <laughs> yes, yeah, so, yeah, that was a long time ago. But yes, Bangor is a very special place for, for, for many of us, I, yeah. I think. And, and so, and, I, yeah. I mean, I, I should of course say it was not only a coincidence that uh, uh, with uh, John Harper, it was also that uh, once I was there, he really got me interest in an academic career. So it was because of him that then after the postdoc, I was not thinking anymore of just returning to Switzerland and, and doing uh, some job, but um, he inspired me and also the intellectual environment in Bangor to, to continue. And so afterwards I went to Harvard to work with Fahri Basas on a further postdoc mm. and eventually got uh, assistant professorship from Swiss National Science Foundation at Basel. And um, I, the interview for that was terrible. And later on, I found out that I probably only got it because uh, Harper and Bazas, they wrote really very nice letters. <laughs> so these things you, you usually don't find out, but I think we should be always very thankful to our advisors. Absolutely, yes. and and. To me, Bangor was interesting because we had John Harper, population biology, and then we had Greg Smith, who was my advisor, yeah. community ecology, and they were sort of poles apart in terms of their ideas and how to do ecology and so forth. And yet most of their students and postdocs were somewhat in between, I think. And we got, yeah. I got a lot from Harper and, and Greg Smith, and I think all of us probably it, did. It was the same for me. I did learn a lot from Greg Smith. And you know, even now when people do statistical um, spatial ecology and so on, I think they often forget uh, what Greg Smith and his people had already invented at that time. So I, I was, uh, I'm still quite impressed what they did in quantitative ecology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've already talked a bit about, about character flavor um, and your work on clonal plants. And, and so you, I wouldn't say you moved on, but you started then work on some other colonial plants like uh, mm -hmm. the solid egos, goldenrods and things like that. Yeah. And so how, uh, how does that arise? Do you, do you switch plants or do, do other groups of plants allow you to answer different questions? Yeah, so uh, it is a bit like this. When I studied in Zurich, it was more kind of what we called um, um, biosystematics, which was systematic botany, but you looked also at ecology, not only 
at morphology and, and cardiology and so on. And at the end, when I finished uh, my thesis about Carx flava, I realized that everything that I found could be seen in the light of R and K selection. So I actually gave this title to the thesis. But what puzzled me uh, very much was that this um, life history strategies could either apply to the tillers of the Carex um, tussocks, or mm -hmm. it could be the entire tussock, what we call the genet. And in Carex flava, it was kind of easy because both the life history of the tillers and of the tussocks showed um, R selection. But uh, there are other Carex species that um, have, uh, for example, very short-lived tillers and very long-lived genets. So, and this was, of course, at the same time, the lab of um, John Harper got very interested in clonal plants. And um, that's um, why somehow uh, it was a fortunate coincidence. But um, in a way, we then realized that um, clonal plants just represent an extreme form of model organization, which is typical for all plants. So in a way, Clonal plants are the best model to study plants. If you would bury a tree in sand so that only the twigs would stick out, it would just look like a clonal plant. Mm. And, and modularity is really what distinguishes plants from most higher animals. And that has very far-reaching consequences for ecology and for evolutionary theory. And I think many scientists, now more than then, prefer to work with annual plants because they are closest to unitary animals and thus they allow you to apply theory developed for animals and then you can suggest that things are really general and encompass both plants and animals. But the clonality actually teaches us that plants are, are really different because plants individuals as populations of their parts should rather be compared with animal populations than with animal individuals. And in a way, a plant is group living in perfection because the leaves, shoots, and branches are genetic kin and physiologically integrated, yet at the same time they have a high independence and can react differentially to the local environment. Mm. Yeah, I remember Harper talking about a tree being a population of buds. Which is very true. Yeah, and yeah. the population of twigs, but even the population of leaves, you know, because yeah, leaves yeah. are basically behaving like individuals independently with a little bit of correlation with other leaves. Mm. Yeah. But if you measure photosynthesis, you stick a leaf into a cuvette, and it's more or less okay that you don't uh, stick the whole tree into the cuvette. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, okay, yeah, um, interesting. Uh, but of course, you haven't stuck with, with that sort of subject your whole career. You, you've, um, I don't know, maybe in the 2000s, maybe you can let me know here. You started to work on um, uh, biodiversity ecosystem function questions. Yeah. So, so now, is it, this is a, it's not a switch, but it's an addition to your work. Is that correct? Yeah, in a way, you could say it's a bit um, jumping on the bandwagon. But on the other hand, a lot of things in my career happened randomly. So I kind of stumbled into ecology, but then later I realized that the main questions were always, what is a community? That was at the very beginning. And what 
is the role of variability in nature. And I admit at first I was very fascinated by this plant sociology because it was based on this Clementian view of the community as a superorganism. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that then, of course, people told me in my postdocs, oh, that's stupid. It's more like Cleason thought. Communities are associations of species that occur in the same place. And then I focused more on demography and population biology of clonal plants. Um, but um, I mean, I was even then I was interested in how the modular parts of a individual can work as an organism. It's also kind of a superorganism of parts. And uh, when all these parts um, may actually function independently. So this uh, led to this question, could diversity be a group strategy? And diversity could best be expressed as a group strategy if the parts are genetically related, as in a plant. Mm -hmm. So then, but when I came back to Switzerland, I had the chance to be involved in a so-called integrated biodiversity project. And there we focused on this possibility of diversity effects, not only actually at the ecosystem level, but even we went from the evolution of mutation rates in bacteria to relation between genetic variation and extinction or invasion probability in plants. And then finally to this biodiversity ecosystem function relation. And that's still somehow that then um, dominated my career since early 1990s. So we found uh, these very strong positive effects of plant species richness on community productivity. And this was quite opposite to what uh, we had learned from John Harper, who taught us that, and that was the sentence, under optimal conditions, the best monoculture should always be better than the best mixture. And actually, I made a handwritten note in a paper from uh, Darwin and Wallace, 1858, where they said it has been shown mixtures are better, and I put several question marks in the margin. And now, of course, I deleted the question marks again, because now I see it's really true. And the, the good thing is that in the meantime, we found that it was this division of labor, uh, which um, allows um, community with several species to perform better than a community with a single species because a single species cannot have this huge plasticity to do all things well. Mm -hmm. And uh, what was the, the most exciting uh, um, finding for me in the last 10 years was that when we analyzed the plants from the biodiversity experiment in Jena in the Gasland, we found they had within eight years evolved increased character displacement and division of labor in mixtures. So probably because at the beginning the seed material was already containing variation and this was kind of selected out and, and therefore after eight years you had uh, already selected for this increased division of labor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay, fascinating. So this brings us to your most recent paper in Journal of Ecology. You had several mm -hmm. and, and they'll be collected in the, the virtual issue that accompanies this uh, interview. Um, so this is a paper uh, by uh, Franka Bongas and colleagues, including you. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, listen to your, your last answer, it, it seems that this is a continuation of these ideas because here you're looking at intraspecific variability. The, the title of the paper, I'll just read this out so everyone knows, is Growth Trait Relationships in Subtropical Forests are stronger at higher diversity. 
tell us a little bit about about that study yeah so um i mean the origin of this project was kind of again like all the other things coincidental but uh, the question was that we uh, wanted to know do these things that hold for meadows and for grassland also hold in forests because for example steve hubble with neutral theory said uh, in in these highly diverse tropical or subtropical forests all species have the same niche and there is nothing like uh, this complementarity and division of labor mm -hmm. and therefore we wanted to do the same for for a tree uh, experiment we did this uh, tree diversity experiment started in um, in china and actually we found exactly the same effect of a, about 1.8 fold increase from monoculture to 16 species mixture in productivity so it was really totally amazing um, but um, what we also found this was in this paper is that in fact this individual viability and community diversity were positively correlated um, so that is what we also found in the uh, grassland experiment but in the grassland experiment it was due to this evolution of division of labor whereas in the forest it was more the plasticity that allowed the species in the mixture to separate out more so mm -hmm. which is a, i think an interesting finding but as i said this collaboration with chinese colleague was was kind of accidental because we had a journey to um, chinese wetlands um, a german professor wanted to do some research there. And I was sent to accompany them that they wouldn't find, uh, do a stupid project. And so I told them, okay, let's suggest we do a forest biodiversity experiment. And then surprisingly, the German Science Foundation uh, supported that and also the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And so that's how now since 15 years, I all the time travel to China, maybe twice a year, except mm. now it was not yes. possible. And we work on this big experiment. Mm, fascinating. Yes. Well, it's a, I'm glad you published that paper in Journal of Ecology. Um, so uh, as we bring this to, to a, a conclusion, um, you've had several papers in Journal of Ecology. Are there any other ones that you want to just mention briefly? I, uh, I hesitate between the one by Lisa Marqua, where we showed that biodiversity in grassland increase productivity mainly because mixtures allow higher total densities than monocultures. Mm -hmm. And the other one, which was um, demographic analysis of, of a single population of goldenrod, Solidago altissima. And this, in my view, was the most comprehensive demography study in plants after Jose Sarkan's study of his ranunculus species in mm -hmm. pasture in North mm -hmm. Wales. And um, Andrea, Meyer, who did this work, um, actually, for example, excavated rhizomes every year and buried them again to see how these uh, uh, plants grew underground. And in the end, he produced these perfect figures according to the um, book, The Visual Display of Quantitative Information by Edward Tufty. So I'm sure these are the graphs in Journal of Ecology with the highest Data to non-data ink ratio. All right, well, 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 <laughs> check, check it out. <laughs> yeah, we will. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, fascinating. Okay. Um, so for, finally, then, um, uh, what advice would you give 
uh, as a senior ecologist to early career ecologists that are listening to you today? Yeah, okay, so of course now it's different. At the beginning of my own career, ecological research was typically done individually or in small groups. And I think I was really lucky to have been able to do my PhD at that time. In contrast, my own master and PhD students um, were included usually in big projects, which became ever more complex. And thus, they had to work on a particular more specialized topic within a large team, which probably will be the common situation in ecology also in the future. So under these circumstances, my advice is to engage actively in collaboration and exchange data freely with others, as freely mm -hmm. as possible. So because if you keep variable x1 and the other one variable x2 for yourself, then you miss the opportunity to combine the two variables in a synthesis, for example, looking at correlations and trade-offs. And another more prosaic advice is to learn statistics from basic principles and mistrust everything that you cannot understand yourself. I, you know, I see a great danger that ecologists use statistically or statistical tools inappropriately because they follow these general recommendations rather than their intuition and logic. My impression, for example, is that mixed models, and I would like to write a paper about this, are wrongly specified in the large majority of all peer-reviewed ecological papers. Hmm. But I admit that it takes a lot of learning and experience to avoid such pitfalls. But if you do learn that, you will be richly rewarded. Okay, so very good advice for everybody. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you very much for, for this chat. Uh, I enjoyed it. And I'm, I know that uh, people listening will enjoy hearing what you've had to say thank today. So thank you yeah, very thank much. You. Thank you too. It was very nice.